and welcome to this very important edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm sure it will be special as well, but it is important because we are doing a seminal film for the Get Your Film Fix folks, and that is Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, on its 20th anniversary, directed by Peter Weir, based on the books by Patrick O'Brien. Uh, it's a film that we talk about often, we reference on this podcast often, but we've never took the time to uh, do a proper review, which we're doing now. So I thought I'd start us out with something uh, kind of fun to get us into this film. Um, you know, I've been watching a lot more movies these last few weeks because just a little tirade. Uh, the Boston sports teams have all recently lost and are out of the playoffs and they've oh, sort of shamed us all. So I've had a little bit more time to uh, catch up on some films and I decided to watch a bunch of Peter Weir movies before this for obvious reasons. So I caught back up on The Truman Show, which I... I had seen multiple times um witness which i thought i had seen but i honestly couldn't remember a frame of that movie so we'll just count that as seeing it for the first time uh picnic at hanging rock and of course i i rewatched master and commander and one of the things i did notice about peter weir in all these movies but especially in master and commander is just how detail oriented he is um, especially when it comes to like recreating or, or building a world that feels really real. Um, so I kind of want to ask you guys, in this world, aboard um, the friend, uh, friendship, that's in Salem, aboard the uh, surprise, I want us to pick for each other which position or character or um whatever that we would we would be uh if we were on this on this ship so i want basically i want chapin to do lee i want lee to do me and i'll do chapin how about that <laughs> um this is great because i thought we i i thought perhaps we'd do this at the end where we all like assign ourselves the character no, I want to see. Okay. I want to. I want to. I want to start it off with this, and uh, right. and then we can kind of go from there. So, Chapin, who who do you think you? It could be a character, or it could be you know uh, a lieutenant or one of the little boys lieutenant. that yeah. that uh, you know. Well, Lee, I already know what Lee would be. Lee would All be right. the, the the master. So he would be the sailing master, who's um, uh, in this film is John Allen. Uh, he's a warrior. Uh, but he needs to be in control of all his de- all the details. He's the one who uh, runs like the sort of the the uh, sailing part of the ship. So he tells everyone, to, "Oh, go up there, go up, go down there." And like we need to reef, we can't reef it at sea. We've got to find, we've got to go home. We've got to find our masts. Um, then I so get, I, well, then I get a bullet right in the forehead, right in the head. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know Lee famously uh, counts his. Uh, eggs before they're in the pudding, so uh, deserves <laughs> deserves that bullet to the head. Um, all, all right, right. so who do is, you do me? Who's Jeremy? Jeremy, yeah. my first my first thought um, was that perhaps he was Hollem and just grabbed a cannonball and jumped overboard because he didn't want to be coward. out there. <laughs> a coward. Yeah. No, not so much the coward aspect. More just mm. the I don't. Uh, this is not for me. <laughs> um. But I don't think that's entirely fair. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. I mean, this is... <clears throat> also, you know, like, uh, Lee could also be uh, Killick, the Captain Steward, who kind of grumbles and is... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm looking through the cast here. I mean, I, I, I there's, like, some evidence that um, he could be Bondin, played by Billy Boyd. Um mm-hmm. You know, he's sort of steadfast in making sure they're in the right place and going the right direction. It's sort of locations based, um, but also not not all that interesting. Um, yeah, that's my, yeah, more my, like the navigator. 
my sense of direction also isn't great. <laughs> it's not great. No. Okay, so maybe we'll we'll cut that. I mean, he's definitely not going to be like the carpenter's mate, no. um, <laughs> or the or the <laughs> he could be Mister Higgins, the surgeon's mate. Um, uh, what about if I was um, what's his name, Lord Bla- Blakely? Blakely? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I. There's would... no way you get your arm cut off that quietly. Oh no, I would I'd be screaming and stuff for sure. Um Yeah, I don't know. I I was thinking for Chapin. I was kind of torn between come on, come on. I don't think there's there's really a I don't think there's really much of a debate here. It's uh, not it's not Aubrey. It's not Aubrey. It's not oh, Come on. It's not the good doctor. Um I sort of thought it would be Billy Boyd's character because he's just so excited to go and steer the boat whichever way he's told to steer it. And I could see Chavin just being really into that, into steering it whenever he was told. Or the older guy that uh, has done this a long time and questions uh, questions Jack. He that's says, that's m- Mr. Allen. That's me. Oh, that's you. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. Um, I could see... Be- only really because I could see Chapin really enjoying those dinners and getting drunk with the with the with the gents. You right, don't think I'm you, guys... you don't think I'm pullings? I think I'm pullings. No, 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 no. Definitely no. like next in line to Captain a a man of war. All right, well we can think this over as we continue. But my Who po- am I? You didn't even say who I was. I did. I I gave you two. Yeah, you're Billy who? Boyd. Billy Boyd no. or what was the other one? Well, I guess Lee's already him. So let's go with your your Billy Boyd. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, this podcast is not coming out now. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, my my point of this exercise is that for as big as this cast is, and as many crew as there are, I mean, everybody feels like a real person in this. Um, yeah. You know, whether like there's this moment where. Aubrey goes down after they've been attacked and there's this one guy who's been repairing the boat and, you know, Aubrey gives him a quick little good job. Like, everybody, it just... I don't really know how he did it so well. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with taking the source material from Patrick O'Brien, which I don't believe any of us have read. Maybe you have, Chapin. Have you read the the, the novels? Uh, I tried to read Master he, and Commander. The I first hear they're one. really dense. They're very dense, and they're written in kind of like... I mean, despite the fact that, that the first one was published in 1969, they're written like they were written back in the day. I mean, they, right. they feel... They're very sort of antiquated language. It's not like reading Treasure Island. It's not an easy read. Um, I, I kind of want to give it a shot again. Do you have- um, so, Chapin, this, the, this is or like one of your favorite movies, or is it your favorite movie still? It's up there, no matter what. It's a, it's up. I mean, it's definitely, it's probably in the top two or three, if not the best. Right. So, what, what is it about it that you love so much and that you're drawn to? Is it, is it that density of, of, um, filmmaking or like explain, explain to us? I mean, it's, what it's drew you to it? It was interesting watching this movie. You know, I was I was thinking about our last podcast with Tyson, and I think Lee, you need to explain a little bit um, of the relationship that you guys have outside of your relationship with, with him and me, because I think a lot of people might be shocked by how we treated him. Um, but <laughs> I think th- there's very much there's a lot to explain there. Um, but Tyson didn't watch the um, the movies again for the podcast, which is fine. Um, he knows them backwards and forwards, but. I was thinking, like, did I really need to watch Master Commander for this podcast? But I really, truly think it is important to watch the movies for the podcast. And I know I've been the biggest um, violator of that particular um, edict. But watching it this time, I really just... I had so many... Not epiphanies, really, but, like, I just watched it with a much more critical eye. And there are some things that I sort of never noticed were a little less than A+, I should say. But... They were few and far between. I, I think I just love, I mean, this is just my kind of movie. It's like a, it's a movie about, you know, men in combat. It's an adventure tale. It's not too heavy. It's not too funny. It's, it's sort of perfectly toned. It's exquisitely 
directed and the style of it is just so authentic and sophisticated <laughs> and um you know there's obviously been an incredible amount of care and uh time and effort and money and put into making all the details authentic and um I, I know we always kind of sort of debate that and talk about how, well, does that really matter? Like, the, like we're making a movie here. It's not, nothing is real. But I think in this case, um, especially when you're adapting a, a novel uh, series like this, it's important for these movies to look like, I think part of the reason we read these and, and part of the reason why we watch a movie like Master Commander is to get an idea. I mean, it's a $150 million realization of what it was like to be on one of these boats, you know, in during the uh, Napoleonic Wars. And there's so much written right. and legend about about what it was like, like sailing on these vessels. It's not something that exists anymore. Um, and this is like such an authentic representation of that, that you, you just can't help but be literally transported. And I, I also think that like Weir has such an affinity for these characters and these men. And I think it would be so easy to fall into the trap of like um, sort of putting people in their sort of typical stereotypical kind of archetypal roles, like the domineering captain and like the bookish doctor and uh, all those things. But these guys really get along and they sort of care for each other in a strange way. And I just, every time I think that to me is the most moving part of it is the yeah. way that these men <laughs> care for each other and interact and their relationship with each other, you know, stuck on this, you know, not enormous boat. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. It's the combination of the detail of the filmmaking and the detail of everything you see on screen. But that alone is not going to make a good movie. You know, it can be extraordinarily accurate and the movie could still fall flat. Um, it's a combination of that and, and which, you know, brings you into the uh, era and also and maybe more importantly, it is the relationships and the character development that is is um, treated with just or is equal footing as um, all that other stuff we were just talking about. And I think with those two working together so well, that's what makes this movie so amazing. I think you're you're definitely right, Jeremy, but in particular, I think what separates this movie is that we're recognized and probably Patrick O'Brien recognized that this life and what these men went through and what these battles consisted of was so dramatic and captivating that it allows you to be as authentic as possible. You don't have to take dramatic or creative liberties or, or insert cliches or stereotypes in order for it to be successful because what you're seeing is is incredibly dramatic. Just the, the, yes, but the scenes a very... of them sitting with no wind for there... days and days and days is dramatic. There's a very mindful approach, though, to their relationships and to how they interact. There is, and I think there's a, a, that's a separate quality of this movie. And I think we all kind of like the optimism <clears throat> in which most everyone interacts with each other, which which may go against the sort of authenticity of it, because I imagine in real life it wasn't as sort of uh, jovial and congenial. Well, I, right I, I don't know that it is all that optimistic. I mean, you have some scenes where they're, <gasps> like, drunk is... and playing around, but then you also have them, like, telling these, like, stories of the Phantom and these curses, and, like, yes. you have people disrespecting officers and, like, being flogged and i think in many and like you know begging for water when it's not raining and like i i think it's miserable at times too and this movie captures that too true true but i also think and i'm this isn't a criticism of the movie that and maybe it's more to aubrey's character and crow's performance but he he especially and it goes through to the rest of the crew has a sense or gives off a sense that 
that we we're going to do this and we're going to be he's he's almost smiling through the worst of it sometimes a little and i do think that there's a element of that that isn't like totally embraced in this movie with the whole idea that he is just brash and cocky and you know he is challenged by paul bettany's character about continuing to chase after the Acheron, and there's this one line where he says, my order is stopped in Brazil. So I've gone way past that. And it's right. <clears throat> that's really the only moment where you kind of see that this guy is like got an ego. Yeah, and maybe um, putting and people th- in danger. <clears throat> right, and I think that that is supposed to be a bigger element here because yeah. you see Paul Bettany you know, challenge him multiple times about what their plans are. And, and, and maybe this is a good time to bring this up, but my maybe one criticism of this movie and watching it this time around is I could, I could imagine that you could go grittier with this film and it could be, it could take, it could transport you to the miserableness of being on this boat for, for whatever months on end. Um, and as well with the battles, if this had been rated R, obviously there's a decision to make it PG 13. I'm not saying this isn't bloody enough. It didn't work out at the box office anyway. They might as well. Exactly. But I do think that there's something to be said for maybe adding an extra element of, of that grittiness that would have made this a rated R movie. I, I want to, Stop you there. I I disagree with that a little bit. One, I think. Well, okay. I mean, having the the ability to go rated R would would have been cool, and possibly, you know, had you made this movie today, where you know probably the only person who could afford to make this was Netflix or Apple TV. But um, <clears throat> I actually think this movie is quite bloody for it is. PG thirteen rating, and I think the way that Weir directs a lot of those medical sequences i mean there's sort of three big ones the amputation of blakeney's blakeley's um blakeney's arm um and then the sort of first surgery (laughs) on the head skull trans transfusion or whatever that is and then of course the um operating on himself scene um and that's all so strongly directed and there isn't a lot of blood, and you don't see a lot of that. It's just it's it's done. But there's you know, there, there's really good go stuff about when he when he's during that first battle and he's operating and he's like, I need more sand on the floor because you see mm-hmm. how slippery and bloody the floor Look, is getting, I'm, and that tells you this how bloody, bloody this se- this this sequence is without seeing it. Smart. Yeah. Um. And so I. Uh, I mean, Jeremy, I think you always talk about the limitations that filmmakers face to um, and how it enhances their work. And I think I'm sure we are wanted a, a, to be able to do an R rating here or have the freedom to at least. I think I think the, you know, because of the enormous budget of this film um, and keeping it to a PG-13 rating really made for some really dynamic and interesting filmmaking. So I, yeah, think I, have to I disagree I, with you here. I mean, I don't disagree with anything you guys are saying. I mean, it's the one thing that sort of caught my eye a few times, especially with that final battle when they aborted um, the Acheron. Is that how you say it? Um, Acheron, yeah. Or if you're French, Acheron. Yeah. When That's when I'm like, oh, man, I, I kind of wish I saw a bit more stab wounds. But honestly, it's a nitpick thing. It's just something in my notes that I wanted to bring up and see if you guys felt that at any point but i i agree with you chape and i think like there are i there are moments of this movie i i uh, had to look away or felt like i had to look away even though i technically didn't but like the amputation scene and and you know he's biting down on and you're just like oh you, so i wonder well, I mean, it's just a 14 year old boy having his arm right amputated. yeah it's just yeah. Ter- I, terrible i wonder kind of to continue to argue that point like this movie to me what I, what i took away so much this time and again i've always liked this movie but like you, Chapin, oh God, I kind of looked like at it, it a little bit more critically this time. Like, it is so immersive. Like, so immersive. Like, you are on this ship. Like, in little cutaways and stuff that they utilize to make that work. So I wonder, 
had this movie been more violent, like how how do we stomach that? Like how do we like because we are so in the thick of it with these characters, and it is dirty and messy and wet and we're all sunburned and yeah. it's just like it's so gritty that I wonder if we're getting like cut throats and stab wounds and bullet holes and blood splattering on the camera lens and stuff are we taken out of that or is it too much like is it maybe this is just the perfect amount of violence portrayed I, that's the thing is that I, I do I, I, I think one of Weir's main tenants in this film is that I don't know if it's like the enjoyment of war but it's like what motivates these men to do this work right and you know I, I like I, I just made this connection on the podcast but like comparing Aubrey to say Jeremy Renner's character in in the Hurt Locker like guys men who are just sort of especially in a time like like um, you know 17th century 1805 England yeah. where yeah where these these you know you, like you're a ship's captain and that's that's your that's your life and that's everything about you and and you've you've found a way to intellectualize that and justify that and think about that um and that's just who you are and these I think what he finds I mean this I, I wouldn't describe this as an anti-war movie like I think there is some awful things that happen and you know, like we these key characters that we've come to love uh, have have died. Um, but in a weird way, I think this is like weird, like kind of finds what these men love about this process and what keeps them on on the boat. And yeah, and what motivates someone like Jack Aubrey, who, you know, probably doesn't have to do this kind of work. And is I mean, all the officers, of course, in this on the ship are, you know, gentlemen from, you know, from good, you know, from rich families. And so, and young, I, I don't know, like under I, 18. Young, yeah. And I don't know the details as to why they have to go to war or, or what, what sort of what the cultural I, reasons. Are I heard that, but, that, that like it, it was, it, this really happened. Like the rich families would sign their sons up and this was sort of an ad, admirable thing for them to do. Um, and, and sort of move up in the ranks. Um, you know, yeah. and, and signing them up as young as like 14 years old. And there, there are remnants of that now. I mean, like when, you know, when you go into ROTC in college, you're immediately a lieutenant. You're immediately an officer. Um, and there's just, I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, um, but you have that, you know, very interesting, but very subtly woven idea of class on the ship and these sort of gentlemen who are, you know, in you know, like like Blakeney has his you know, like he's in charge of a you know, or the our young whatever his name was the kid who dies at the end, who's promoted to third lieutenant. Like he's in charge. He's like a sixteen year old kid who's in charge of like you know a gun crew and and a bunch yeah, of men and they have and, real responsibility. And I you know that scene where um, they're running around on the Galapagos Islands and they spot the Asheron. Uh, it's Blakeney who's like. We gotta, we gotta get all these fucking things back to the. We gotta get back to the ship to tell them what we're doing. This little fourteen year old boy is like, yeah, he's like, put all the things down, yeah. yeah. And um, you know, he he's a real officer. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying a little earlier, Chapin, like, and simplicity isn't the right <clears throat> word, but the sort of modernism aspect of this story, where there's a good guy and a bad guy and there's really not much more to it as far as just the the basic storyline this right. boat is trying to find that boat this boat's our our hero that boat's the anti-hero um and one's going after the other it's it's kind of rare nowadays like it it, it didn't like you said it's not making an anti-war comment it's not sort of subverting the genre in any way yeah, it's, it's more really, of a cat and mouse movie it's like, really about this simple story and about the relationship in that and speaking of the relationship within that where does this relationship between Stephen, dr Stephen here and captain jack aubrey rank for you guys in terms of cinematic friendships <laughs> 
It's got to be up there, right? Definitely for me. I mean, uh, it is for me, too. It's not as high after this viewing uh, as it uh, was in the past. Now, I really like both of them in this movie, and I like their performances a great deal. Their, their scenes together didn't have the same, like, camaraderie that I remembered necessarily. And I think that goes back a little bit to what I was saying about how um, Paul Bettany is Matron is constantly challenging Aubrey's decisions. But I we like, don't see, ever I like totally... That. I like it too, but we don't totally get what's wrong with Aubrey's decisions in this movie as much as I think it was intended to. And that was like maybe my like only small issue with it is that like we don't get this cocky, brash captain Jack Aubrey here. We get an ambitious captain that's a little, you know, peeved that he's been outwitted a couple times by Napoleon and he's going after him perhaps a little bit hastily. But, you know, aside from that one line where he says my orders ended when we hit Brazil and we're still going down around the southern tip of South America, like there's not a whole lot of uh, justification for Matron to continue challenging him. And, you know, honestly, this like I kind of came out of it this time being like, you know, Matron is wrong a lot of the time, especially in that conversation when he's just like, I don't have time for your hobbies. Like, sorry, I told you that you could walk around the Galapagos. I'm sorry I promised you that. But, you know, we got to win the war here. And I I didn't find the friendship as compelling this time around. Interesting, because I did. I, I really gravitated to that part uh, on this viewing almost more than even before. You know, especially, I didn't really remember how much pushback there was um, on, on Jack Aubrey from Dr. Stephen Matrin. Matron. Yeah, say it. Um, and I, I like that this time around. Like, I, I don't know. I, I kind of disagree. Um, I mean, I agree with you as far as that one point of like. I mean, sorry, that's kind you of can't, it too. I'm you can't a go bit. around the Galapagos because we now have to fight this. But the fact he was even willing to, the fact that this captain of the ship was willing to let him do this in the to begin with, I, I is great. I mean, that when put, he does put, then eventually make that decision to save his life, they he stops the chase. Right. To go back to the Galapagos. And what it was to save his life, but still, like, I mean, the fact he even considers this man's, you know, quote-unquote hobbies as in his sort of uh, decision-making is is kind of amazing, and it, it goes to show you the friendship, and I, I like that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I loved both of them in this movie. I think both their performances are so good, and that's never changed. Um, yeah, I so. mean, Lee and I, before you got on, Jaden, we're talking about like missing this era of Russell Crowe. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> just wanting it, wanting it back. Because I mean, w- this was you know obviously Gladiator, this Insider, uh, the Beautiful Insider, Beautiful, mean, Beautiful Mind, Mind, which I don't really count anymore after our our podcast of it. But he was fine in it. Um, yeah, just miss it. Totally. Uh, one thing I do want to mention, and it goes back to um, just the detail of this movie, and I don't know what it is about water movies or, or movies on boats. Like, anytime there's the vast ocean, for some reason it becomes extremely more impressive to me how movies are edited together. I think about this, I think about Jaws, and I could really see it, because you really have to have... a and this is to Peter Weir's credit, you really have to have an understanding of where you are in the space and time of the movie to be able to film it and get it so that you could edit it together. For some reason, water well, really emphasized this. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got a, you've got the film made in a bunch of different places. It was, of course, filmed mostly in the uh, Fox Baja tank in Mexico where, where that was created Titanic. for Titanic. Um, but they also took a real ship that they um, turned into the Surprise, which is now at the um, San Diego Naval 
museum um, as the surprise. Um, <clears throat> hey, Jamie, and, and, while we're saying that, uh, when you come to town, you know that the Acheron was based on the USS Constitution, which is in Boston. So if you want to go see that. I'd love to go. I have walked by it. I have not been on it. We so. could go on the Friendship, too, which would probably get its ass kicked by the Acheron. But. It, would be, yeah. it would get murdered. Um, um, Lee, Lee Smith edited this movie, which yep. is Nolan's, Nolan's, Nolan's guy who, you know, has edited Dunkirk and... You know, we like to joke that he edited 1917. That's why he, was that. That's why he couldn't do ten, Tenet. Tenet. <laughs> he, he, had, he, had, he had to splice couple. three, eight shots together. And um, Spectre, Interstellar, uh, the Prestige, and and obviously and he's movies. a he's a great editor. But without the the footage to and the understanding when you're filming it, you know that still needs to be there for him to put it together. Yeah, um, I and I think to sort of further emphasize your point, Jeremy, the idea of like the way they they film this, they you know they there's the sort of the the fake ship on a gimbal in this giant tank on the coast of Mexico, which creates this infinite you know what's called like a infinity horizon. So basically, you can film the ship from all these different angles, and it's right on the ocean, so it looks like you're on the ocean, right? So, um, but they've also they also like fitted. Uh, this they they sort of converted this ship into um to be the surprise which i'm I'm sure you know like well that's where all that money went (laughs) um and then they use you know uh, visual effects to sort of piece all put all the pieces together and i think like very flawlessly i mean i have to i have to say like this film's transfer is horrific um as one of my favorite films this is just such a awfully transferred movie to di- to to digital video um and i think it does sort of a disservice to the visual effects but if you can see past that i do think that this is really seamless and um there's just some great stuff here and i agree with you jeremy i think it's i think it feels very cohesive and um uh i think it works really really well so I'd like to bring something up yeah. about yeah, ahead, Peter Lee. Weir. Um, so he's kind of been long since retired. His last movie was The Way Back. Um, he has, I believe he's been nominated for three Best Directing Oscars. And I'm trying to figure out what he's they are. He's been nominated for six Oscars. I don't know. Um, real quick here. Uh, so, all right. Yeah, so some of them are Best Picture nominations. So, yeah, so Best Director nominee mm-hmm. for... Um, You're Living Dangerously. Dead Poets Society. Um, a nominee for Writing, Green Card. Uh, directing nomination for The Truman Show. Directing nomination for Master and Commander. Um, he was nominated for Wit- Witness in Dead Poets Society. So, Jeremy, you've, you've revisited some of his movies <clears throat> more recently. I've seen a handful of his movies, certainly not all of them, but nothing that I've seen from him would make me think that he could do this because this is so much more epic. The scale is so much bigger and it's done so well that I, I have not noticed the, the stepping stones to this. We talked about this in like the Nolan um, director series pod where you can like see the steps to these bigger movies and like, where he found these skills and these ideas and how he got there. And like, I don't see it. Well, I can kind of disagree with you, but basically, so I watched this movie first of those four Peter Weir movies I watched and then watched the other ones after. And I could a little bit piece it together, like watching in, in, for example, witness, like it it had the same sort of detail oriented feel when it came to uh, the Amish and, and, the way they lived and immersing yourself in that um picnic at hanging rock also had that um painter-esque quality like i think like there's there's moments i mean a lot of moments from not just moments a lot of moments from master and commander where you could freeze frame and put it on a wall as a painting and same with picnic at hanging rock but Uh, there's nothing like this the well, Truman like, Show the scale did, and the set pieces and stuff. Truman are, Show had a pretty big scale and set pieces. Um, that one does feel though a little bit like 
uh, an anomaly because it moves weirdly. It moves a lot faster than than all these other movies that we just discussed. Truman Show also has this, and this is not to say it in a bad way, but it has this this crutch of like being on a set, so like everything can be a set. Yeah. And yeah. it's like almost like a get out of jail free card for anything you want to do. But yeah, especially when it comes to the the painterly quality of Master and Commander, you definitely see that in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, not necessarily as much in actually, yeah, you do see it a lot in Witness in sort of the fields and the the those okay, so, shots. So I, so I stylistically, can... it's there. But like, could you would you had had you you know if you were financing Master and Commander. And you looked at Peter Weir's resume, would be like, yeah, this is the guy I want making this movie. No, I'd want. I'd, I would say I want Ridley Scott, but I think it's brilliant that they cast him, and I think that's brilliant they hired for him. That's why I love this movie is the way it's it's filmed like like a, a like a character piece and not like a hundred fifty dollar hundred fifty million dollar epic yeah movie. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, so. I guess you guys kind of sort of addressed this, but one of my questions was like anything that uh, you were a little disappointed in um, this time around on this viewing, especially you, Chapin. Um. Well, while he's thinking, it's it drags at times. There are no, some moments that drags now. Hold on. There I found myself enjoying some of the like quieter moments of this movie more than I remembered. Like all the stuff like the dinner scenes I really liked, some of just like the one-on-one conversations. I love the stuff on the Galapagos, but it's a slower movie than I remembered. Never felt long, but it is definitely a slower movie. Well, I, and there I are think... like scenes that I, I hate to I probably shouldn't use the word drag because I really don't mean it in necessarily like a completely negative way like i just did find that there were it was a slower movie like it's not as action-packed and as thrilling from beginning to end as i remembered yeah and i agree with that and i think what what keeps it engaging when it's quote-unquote slower is just the um everything we've been talking about as far as the building of the world like you're just sort of yeah, so in it and, and, and you're just yeah. almost just looking around there's just so much and even if the the film itself is is moving a little slower than you'd like, it's still there's still so much there to yeah, engage it's, with. Yeah, it's hard to even say that that's a an issue because like I think about the scenes where like there's no wind and they're just sitting there and can't go anywhere. Like I found that compelling and like little things when like they're just flipping over the hourglass. Like I just found that all part of the immersive experience. So. Yeah, it might not even be a flaw. I might just be trying to like come up with something to answer your question here. But I do remember thinking at one point that bit like this this movie is not as like action packed as I remembered. Chavin, you got anything? I, I the, um I saw just I, I mean just if we're gonna look at this with a with a with a under a microscope, I I saw a little bit of the seams with the crow performance yep um i I would agree with that like i love the things he does in this movie and there's like almost in like the same moments i'm like god i love that but like there's just a little bit of a little little is there a little bit of acting is there a little bit too much of a wink and a nod sometimes so sometimes there's there's a little bit of that um I think the bet I, I I like like I'm I'm sort of with you. I like go back and forth between I like you know like is the Betney character better or, but like I I think he I like really loved him in this in this watching of it and, um. I I think he he there they're just there some of his moments are not like spectacularly. I feel like the writing suffers a little bit in those moments between them. I love their friendship and I think they're so well acted and so well directed. Um, but if you sort of stop and think about, which I think speaks to the things I just said, like how well they're directed and how, um, sort of well they're acted, you stop and like, like just think about the way the things that they are saying would be written down. 
it's like you start to question a little bit the quality of the screenplay. It's a great screenplay. It it should have won best screenplay, but um, I I think that there are the moments where you have to have this reprieve where they start talking about you know anarchy and you know these sort of bigger topics. Um, I think in a film that feels very efficient and does so much with a little bit of time, those they just kind of jump into those moments a little too easily, but. Honestly, I'm like that's such a nitpick. I, I um that. Yeah, I feel like that's all we really can do is nitpick. Um, one thing that did surprise me in a positive way, um, I knew that I love Paul Bettany in this, and this was confirmed. I there were things with with Russell Crowe's performance, like I said, some winks and some nods that I felt took me a little bit out of the movie, but I, overall, I still really love him in it. But it was uh, Max Perkins who plays Blakeney. Uh, I loved him in this movie this yeah, time yeah, around. I just really found found him endearing, and uh, I love that character and I love that performance. So he has had looks like a pretty successful career working in like acquisitions and distribution and worldwide sales on movies. Interesting. Um, he only has he only has four acting credits, um, but he has he is the credit credited for as for worldwide sales and uh, international sales on like twenty or so movies. Um, you know, some it looks like a lot of stuff we haven't heard of, but he, you know, he the wife, <laughs> the wife, the father, and the son, um, two of which were uh, um, Florian Zeller movies. Those are the only ones that looks like. Yeah, it looks like he stopped a, acting in 2014. Um, he has he has a baby with Olga Kurlenko, which hey, good for him, buddy. He was a set PA on the London unit for Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. That's so um, funny. That's so, such a fall from grace. <laughs> yeah, you're like, hey, uh, Max, what what was worse, uh, being a midshipman on? Um, the surprise or working on a Fincher set. Look at her. That's that's Blakeney's wife. Uh no, I mean they're not married, but they they have a child together. Okay. Good. This is good podcasting. Every, most people know who or, Olga Karolinko is. She was a Bond girl. Olga. And she was in the Ter- she was Sex, in the Terrence sexiest Ter- name ever. Olga. <sighs> um, we could talk about how. Badly, the Oscars missed on this movie. Um, well, here, get, uh, before, get yeah, a lot I mean, of nominations, before we go into that, I want to know uh, what your opinion, like especially Chapin's opinion, on why this didn't do well at the box office, and then we can go into how the Oscars didn't. Well, you know, it's it's strange. I was thinking about that. I think I I would hope ultimately that this movie made money. I don't know that it did. I think it might have actually lost money, but. Who knows? Maybe we can Google that and figure it out. Looks like there's a prequel in the works. Um, yeah, I heard about that. We'll see. I don't... Um, so, but I, I mean, I think the same reason that it got made is the reason why it probably wasn't very popular. Um, it, uh, you know, I think it was probably greenlit on the backs of, you know, Russell Crowe. Gladiator. Yeah. yeah, Russell Crowe definitely, but Gladiator, um, you know, the sort of the return of these like big budget historical um, films. And, you know, it's probably $50 million too expensive, um, but it shows it's definitely on screen. And it's, you know, it's, it's like, I, the, like the way I, if, if you, I would never say something so trite on, this brilliant podcast of ours. But if somebody came up and asked me why I love this movie, I would say it's, you know, who isn't as well versed in cinema as the three of us, I would say it's an art film with a $150 million budget. That's what I would say. It's filmed like an art, like a, like a character piece with, with the budget to, to make a film like this. And, and it's grounded in this, you know, historical accuracy. And I think, you know, this is this this came out the same year as, um, you know, uh, 
Pirates of the Caribbean and The Matrix and, you know, Return of the King. Um, you know, there's a lot of fantasy that that people were getting into. And this kind of adult, it kind of, I feel like there's a, a lot of these films land in sort of between two things. And, and because of that, they, they, they make, they do well. I mean, it made a hundred million dollars, 200 million worldwide. Um, but I think just like, like, what is this? Is this a movie for 14 year old boys? Like, or like, uh, yeah, it's a dad movie. Caribbean or is it for dads? You know, exactly. And, um, you know, there's not one female speaking role in this, which I, I like I and I like that and I don't not because of the reasons that you think I'm not trying to not because I'm a sexist but because like they're obviously the absence of women in this is is important um to these men but there's really there's not one woman who speaks in this film um, there's barely there's so, one woman that smiles that's it there's one woman <laughs> that smiles yeah and you know that that can be limiting for people um you know I I don't know have, have do you guys um do, do, I, I'd be curious. Like, do your do your are your wives aware of this movie? Have they watched it with you? Did you watch? Yeah, this I watched with them? it. I watched it with Sarah. Um, yeah, she really she likes it, this film. She thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I think I think all the stuff we've been talking about is the reason, or, or Look, among the reasons this didn't do well. Like, there's this like gritty authenticity to it that you know may turn some people off. There's a there's this like absence of stereotypes that can draw an audience in like i don't know for whatever reason i mean for obvious reasons like you think about this in comparison to something like titanic that can draw in such a massive crowd because of a you know iconic love story at the center of this epic ship sinking and you know we reviewed that movie and our i talked about how great the last hour of that movie is because it's so well crafted and it's such good filmmaking, but I don't give a shit about Jack and Rose. But that movie made billions of dollars because so many people do give a shit about that. And this movie isn't interested in that. It doesn't have that. So it's losing an entire demographic. And, you know, I it, that's what it is. Like, and I don't know that that's like any more product of its time then than it would be now. Like, I think it's very clear why another one of these, a, a sequel to this wasn't made despite there being more books and like the end of this movie being very open-ended. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, Lee, it's interesting. I'm looking here at the, uh, the Oscars and it was the 2004 Oscars. It came out in 2003, but this was for us sort of peak when we were into watching every movie and performance yep. and all that. I mean, this is like, we got Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, Mystic River, Seabiscuit, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Sean Penn that year with Mystic River. Um, it was right there when, when things were still very influential to us, um, which I think we, even back then, kind of got lost a little bit in the in that in the lack of hype train for Master I don't, and yeah, Commander. I don't remember being like fully on board with this movie yeah. from the get go. Like it's I've liked it over the years, but um yeah, just in terms of like rewarding filmmaking, like this is absent in so many areas, like for our filmmaking and all all aspects of production. Like it was nominated for Best Picture, um, but Crow was not nominated for Best Actor. Um and he was not nominated for best supporting actor which i think is criminal yeah, because that's a crime right there if you look at just if you look at like alec baldwin was nominated for the cooler and yeah, I, feel like, Bettany, I feel like he was, was like trying to fill that in in like a weird way yeah i mean you can look at the leading roles in like i don't know ben kingsley for house and sand and fog like a lot of these haven't really aged well in terms of their performances but you can you can understand the argument over crow who'd been just a staple in that category for years um, and then you look at things like, I mean, screenplay, it should have been nominated. I think some of these things that it should have won, yeah, that's um, crazy. like editing and I don't know. It yeah. Just was... Yeah. It's like it, it was nominated for best costume design, which I think it's like, come on, you can obviously, yes, it was great costuming, but 
it's it's like they couldn't look past the surface of it like oh it's a period piece there's costumes throw it in there yeah there's like makeup it, there's art direction like it, they it gave really, them all those like obligatory nominees but yeah looking back at this year it's like the be- some of these movies have not stood the test of time not i mean sea biscuit cold mountain picture. did not i would argue mystic river did not I, we should revisit this. I'd be curious, I'd be curious to I'd, I'd say guys, probably the I, last I, Samurai this, Can you tell not. me, do you guys like this better or worse than Return of the King? Oh, I like this better. Um, yeah, I like it better. Definitely. But it's, again, what I said on the Lord of the Rings podcast is it's so hard for me to look at those movies like not in their totality of those like that trilogy. I'm just so impressed by it, but individually, how I would rather watch Master and Commander than Lord than Return of the King. Honestly, if I had to pick like my top two or three movies from this year, I think City of God would be on there. Uh, I think Master and Commander might be the best. Well, City Maybe... of God was t- not this year, was it? Yeah, it's just nominated. No, it's nominated, yeah, for oh, screenplay. Because we reviewed it last year. Yeah, and uh, I would say Lord the Return of the King. Those would be my three three favorite movies looking back on this well there's a um that's just of the oscar nominees yes because there's there's a bunch that didn't even get um didn't even get nominated um uh pull this up but there's our list um but anyway um well here's a question there is a sequel in the works. Whether it comes out, we do not know. Would you guys like to see one, or do you want to let Sleeping Dogs lie and this sort of be your? I only think. I mean, I, I, yeah, I of course I want to see. It. I mean, I would have loved to see this be the series that they wanted it to be. I mean, it just it just seems like there's so much stacked against that happening. Um, well, it's I mean, impossible it now. I mean, Russell Crowe's not going to be in it. You know, it's like these characters are going to be different. <clears throat> I know, but I mean, the, the idea was for this, I mean, there's like, what, like, I think there's more, over 10 books. There's a lot of books. Um, and, uh, but I, I think it would have been, there's, oh, there's 21 books, 20 books. Um, it would have been cool to see that instead of like a, you know, six Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But um, again, I just, I just don't think when you have a budget, I mean, it was one of the most expensive movies of that year. And it just the it would have had to make six hundred million dollars worldwide to cover, you know, Prince and you know the like the, the the production costs and the marketing. I mean that's that or five hundred million maybe. It's just unlikely. I think. I think I'd like to just let it be, um, for the same reason I'm not all that jazzed about Heat Two. Like yeah, I agree I'm, with that. I just like I think there's these great movies that just exist on their own and whether or not that was the intention doesn't matter like let's just let it be like when has this worked what like top gun maverick is like the only example of going back to the well like many from many years ago and like rebooting or doing a sequel of any kind that has has worked um everything else just like it it doesn't work like it doesn't have the same appeal yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm more saying that I would have liked to see them make more movies at the time. Well, I agree that, with for that. sure. Yeah. That would have yeah. been great. But now, like, I mean, you could do it now without with somebody else playing Aubrey. It's been long enough that nobody's going to be like, oh, wait a minute. Is that supposed to be Russell Crowe? Like, you just would recast the way they've done many times. I just I can't imagine it being as as good. Uh, all right. So how we're going to wrap this up with us picking um between three actors or three characters, not anyone. So obviously we got Aubrey, we got uh, our good doctor, and I would say uh, Blake uh, Blakeney will be the third. So those are the three. Who's who? Uh, this is gonna be tough. This is gonna be tough. I'm I probably Matron. I want. I want to be Matron. Yeah, but I. I think that's me. I don't know. Uh, I feel like. Chapin's just going to argue us into him being Aubrey, so we can just let him. Have we'll it, we'll huh? give him that. And God, uh, so, thank you so much. That's so meaningful to me that you came to that decision. I know it's. I know it was tough. Uh, I don't mind. I don't mind being uh, Blakeney, but 
it's not about like what we want. It's yeah. just about like who who makes sense, which is you know not what we did for Chapin because obviously it doesn't make sense for him to be Aubrey. But no, obviously <laughs> it does. I think obviously it does. Give us a give us a reason. Yes, more than I twice think... the guns that we have. That's well, then true. That makes I... him Napoleon. <laughs> I, no, I Chapin does have a little bit of a no, while well, not short. He has a little bit of a Napoleonic complex. Offensive. Um, I obviously am a leader. Um, I'm well respected by my peers. Um, I think you guys did call me like Lucky Chapin Hemingway. Um, Lucky Chapin on, on during the. Uh, I think you guys said that. I'm pretty sure you said that. Well, here well... that's your best argument because yeah, literally in, a lot. in Vegas. <laughs> When Chapin would go play at roulette, Lee and I would just see him start moving towards a roulette and table. And this very specific and, walk, yeah, yeah. And start following him and go like, he's going, he's going, Lucky Chapin's going. And we'd go and we'd just put it down on black or red or whatever he decided and he would win 90% <clears> of the time. So I think that's a good argument, actually, Chapin. We did follow right. you then because we enough. wanted the money. Right, I mean, and, and, you know, the podcast and all, you know, all that. And it's like, you know, kind of the work I do, I you know, every well-respected. Yeah, you, you're and, definitely the leader of the podcast in terms of getting, making sure it gets going and making sure we watch the yeah. movies and what movies to right. watch. And, right, 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 yeah, right, 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 Managing that. Right, and I compliment you to keep make sure you keep the spreadsheet going. I, you know, I, I'm guiding the ship, Lee. You're down, you're working the sales. You're the guy doing the details. Details are not really my thing. I'm... I'm sort of pointing the ship to where it goes. See, that's why I'm maturing. I, I usually am. only use one arm, so. Right, yeah. <clears throat> there you go. Yeah. Solved. Solved. Uh, all right, anything else you guys wanted to add that was on your list, or should we wrap it up here? Let's wrap it up, but I, I, I'm, um, I did want to talk quickly about a movie that I saw in theaters, which I haven't, you know, I, God, guys, like, I... Uh, when you pop out of even even during fixie season, but especially when you pop out of fixie season, I don't make it to the theaters as much as I'd like to. I th- I feel like we need yeah. to make a real effort to do that. It's hard um, right but, after the fixies, yeah. Yeah, I went to go see Sanctuary, um, a film that sort of a small independent film with Margot Qualley, Margaret Qualley, and um, I forget that kid's name, Christopher Abbott. Um, it's basically the two of them in a in one set in one hotel room, hotel suite. Um, the whole time, it's kind of a sexual kind of uh, thriller. Uh, interest, very interesting movie. I think I would recommend every people see it. Um, you know, I don't know that I would recommend it to my mother or your mothers, but um, it might not pass the thirteen lives test. But um, a really interesting performance by specifically Margaret Qualley. Um, who I think is just kind of a fascinating actress to look at. I mean, her mom is um, Jeremy's uh, favorite, Annie McDowell, who I think is sort of just borders on. Is she an actress? Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Jeremy, yeah, hates I, 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 I think she's quite bad, but um, quality is quite different. Like she's very expressive in her face and movement. Um, she starred in this spike jones perfume commercial that's a long form commercial um that's really an amazing piece of work uh that you guys should watch if you haven't seen it um but she was also uh, she was an honorable mention for me for the fixies last year for stars at noon which is a claire denis movie um oh which cool was ex- i didn't even know she was in that. i didn't love the movie it was definitely too long and but she was really good in it interesting um yeah so uh, she's one to watch for sure. I mean, she's just doing things that I don't think uh, young, sort of beautiful actresses are comfortable doing, and I think that that, that makes her just so interesting to me. Um, she's very expressive, like I said, the way she moves. I wonder if she was a dancer once. I don't know, but um, a, a, a very a very interesting movie, and um, you know, it's quite possible this could make a the fixie. Um, the fixies wow. next year when you guys come out uh, to Portland to record. That's what I know her from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's that's an exciting little tease. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the very important and very special Gay Film Fix podcast. 
Take care. There you go. Way to wrap it up. Brief. Thank you.